how has one GP shifted from investing in distressed companies to adopting a good to great model? And what does 2022 have in store for that GP, namely Sun European Partners? And how can GPs navigate sky-high valuations in sectors like healthcare and technology? We'll be discussing all this and more with our guest, Mark Corbett from Sun European Partners, in the latest episode of the Unquote Private Equity Podcast. Hello, listener, and welcome to this new episode of the Unquote Private Equity Podcast. I'm Harriet Matthews, private equity reporter at Unquote, and we've got an in-conversation-with episode for you today, bringing you in-depth interviews with leading market participants. We had the pleasure of welcoming Raymond James Sabil Capital's Sunaina Sinha on the previous episode, where we talked about the firm's acquisition by Raymond James, as well as fundraising and secondaries trends. This time, we have a GP as our guest, in the form of Mark Corbidge, Managing Director at Sun European Partners. Mark joined Sun in 2019 and has around 20 years' experience in the industry with the likes of TPG, CPPIB and Doughty Hansen. It's my pleasure to welcome Mark to the podcast. Mark, thanks very much for being here. My pleasure and thank you for inviting me, Harriet. Now, we'll be catching up on Sun's strategy and your market outlook today. Maybe a good place to start is with the history of the firm. So my understanding is that your US affiliate, Sun Capital Partners, was founded in 1995, with Sun European Partners forming around 10 years later. Obviously, the industry has changed a lot in that time. But maybe you could tell me a bit about how Sun came to have its focus originally. What were the driving factors behind the strategy? Sure, I'm happy to. So our co-founders, Mark Lader and Roger Krause, met at uh, Wharton together, studied together, then joined Lehman Brothers. And as you pointed out, they left Lehman in 1995 to found uh, Sun Capital Partners. And they chose to base themselves in Florida on the basis that there were plenty of private equity firms in New York City and that there were fewer private equity firms in the state of Florida than in certain buildings close to um, Central Park in New York City. And they thought, somewhat wrongly as it transpired, that they would therefore have the opportunity to see deals in the southern states earlier. But sadly, that didn't work out because they didn't have a dedicated fund like many of the other private equity firms did at that stage. And so they spent a couple of years without actually doing a deal. And it's only when they decided to look at distressed companies that they'd probably reviewed once already and passed on. But by revisiting them, they felt that they could probably improve the operational performance and get them back into profitability. And so it was really out of necessity. And so the way the business has been built up is quite simply operational expertise has been there from day one. We sometimes discuss internally whether Bud Terry, the first operator, was the second hire after Mark and Roger or the third. But either way, the operational approach has been fundamental to the company since day one, and it's a fundamental part of the DNA of the company as we sit here today. I see. Interesting. Now, Sun, I understand, has actually been changing over the last few years from its original emphasis on distressed situations 
to businesses that I think have been referred to as under a kind of good to great model in terms of your ownership and the operational improvement or supervision under Sun. So I wanted to ask really when and why you made that conscious decision to change strategy slightly. How did that come about? Sure. Well, firstly, you're absolutely right, Harriet. We have evolved the strategy over time and we started to shift away from looking at what we would describe as exclusively fourth quartile deals, although we do on occasion still come across those. But the bulk of our portfolio companies now sit between the second and third quartiles. So we don't, for avoidance of doubt, look at top quartile businesses simply because they tend to be priced to perfection. And there are large pockets of capital looking for opportunities which really need very little care and maintenance. We, on the other hand, at Sun, pride ourselves in being able to provide not only care and maintenance, but really driving operational improvement in the businesses. And so what we're looking for nowadays is really to look at controlled buyouts. We don't do um, minorities, for example, in defensible businesses which have got very clear growing markets and where we can bring our expertise. And so really the third point, which is the most important, is that there are these tangible operational performance improvement opportunities and that we can identify those early on. And so we're still using that operational experience that we had from our turnaround days. But as you rightly point out, we're starting to look at businesses which are further developed, but where there's still the opportunity to help to professionalize the business, to help to digitize the business, for example, using that skill set that we have internally. And that leads us to still acquiring businesses where, for example, the multiples may be slightly less than the mean or the median in that sector as a result of the fact that they need that assistance. But those multiples, for example, if you take healthcare, can be quite high up into the mid-teens, for example, with ClearChoice, which is an acquisition in the US, because that's the prevailing multiple in that uh, industry. But we don't look at the multiple per se. We look at what we think we can do to the business and where we can improve it and therefore how we can drive returns for our investors. Right. I think you've touched on this a bit already then, but what kind of new opportunities has that strategy and that move away from mainly doing turnarounds opened up? Maybe you can tell me a bit about how this is actually borne out during the pandemic and, of course, in the the time after, because certain distressed investors may have been expecting a wave of opportunities here. But it sounds like that's not quite what you're going for now. So it would be great to hear a bit more about how that's been panning out for you. Sure. Happy to. So, I mean, in terms of the areas that we're focusing on more and more, I touched upon earlier, but healthcare is a key area for us where we've had a number of successes, not just clear choice in the United States, where we're keen to replicate that success in the European market. So last September, we were fortunate enough to hire Mark Braganza as a managing director to head up healthcare investments in Europe. Um, And we're really excited by that opportunity and the possibilities for those types of deals that Mark can bring to the party. 
The other area where we've added in the US and we're looking to add in Europe is in the tech space. Now, that doesn't mean, coming back to your earlier point, that we will completely ignore opportunities where we clearly still have the toolbox and the skill set to turn around the fortunes of that business. And we've had the opportunity to do that during COVID, where businesses have been uh, closed for business, therefore no turnover coming in, um, shops were shut, um, no sort of transactions were taking place. And therefore, we had to go in and stabilize those businesses. But once they come out of a lockdown situation, they then continue to flourish. And it's having that expertise and also that pattern recognition from the early days of the firm through the investment committee members, including the two co-founders, that we can still look to do that. But our focus, as I just mentioned, is it's not gone completely away from business services, industrials, where we've done very well in the past, but we are extending more into healthcare, tech, et cetera. And what about the consumer sector? You've had some interesting deals there and some exits there over the last year or so. I think Dreams comes to mind for one, for example. Is that still a sector of focus? It has been in the past. I think we've de-emphasized bricks and mortar retail, for example, as well as apparel and casual dining. Because I think if you go back in history, when we entered the financial crisis, we probably had a little bit too much of those three sectors within our portfolio. And as you can imagine, given the greater cyclicality and volatility of those businesses, they didn't perform as well as other companies in the portfolio at that stage. And so we tend to look uh, cautiously at those areas for that reason. But yes, we still do um, the odd retail deal. And a classic example of one we did during the COVID pandemic was also a beds retailer in uh, the Bay Area near San Francisco called Mancini Sleep World. And that's as a result of having owned mattress businesses in the US before, but also, as you rightly point out, we had a very successful exit um, last year with Dreams and a further successful exit with Sharps, both of which have a sort of a strong retail component to them. So I think that they were in the portfolio for a period of time, longer than our average hold period. But when you have very capable operators, as we do internally, and you stick with it and you've got quality management teams, which is certainly the case in Dreams, you can see things through to the end and make some very good returns for your investors. I see. Makes sense. Perhaps turning now to some more recent deals as examples of your newer strategy that we've been discussing. I know there was Fletcher's, a law firm in the UK, as well as Sports and Leisure Group, an artificial turf company that's based in Belgium. Maybe, Mark, you could give a bit of a brief deep dive, if that's possible, into one of the other of your recent deals uh, in Europe and just explain how they kind of exemplify that new approach. Sure. Well, very briefly on Fletcher's, the whole area of legal services is one that we've been targeting for a while. And our head of business services, Alex Wyndham, was successful in identifying Fletcher's um, in that context. Um, so more proactive approach to hunting rather than farming, if you understand the meaning. And then I can talk uh, quite happily about SLG because it's a deal that I did myself. As you said, it's the market leader in 
artificial turf, predominantly sports, so 83% of sales in sports, uh, another 17% in landscaping. And so a great business, market leading positions in most of its core markets, very strong barriers to entries, simply because it has certifications from all of the world's uh, sports governing bodies. Uh, so FIFA, um, for football, but also in rugby, in hockey, in paddle, uh, a sort of a smaller version of tennis. And it's a business that um, has grown very nicely uh, with an entrepreneurial management team where they made a significant acquisition in 2019, La Monta, in Italy to add to a very strong brand, uh, Domo Sports, in Belgium, where the, the business is headquartered. So there was still the opportunity to helped integrate uh, those two businesses, which hadn't really taken place as a result of COVID. But we see a number of other areas, such as plant optimization, given the two factories, but also factories in Paraguay and China, procurement where we can sort of help them in terms of yarn uh, procurement, for example. So quite a few paths to victory in terms of organic growth uh, but also one of the reasons why the deal came to us was that the CEO is keen to expand into the U.S. market, which is clearly one of our strong points, given our offices in Boca Raton, Florida, New York City and L.A. Uh, and in addition to that, he wanted to add some landscaping distributors in certain markets where the presence of the company was not as strong as it might be. And so these are all areas where our operational expertise can come and assist him and his management team in taking the business really to the next level. Great. Now, we've spoken quite a bit about the portfolio and Sun's strategy in itself, but ultimately, I wanted to ask how well your LPs have reacted to this gradual change in strategy. And maybe you could tell me how this is likely to, or whether it's likely to, affect things as you move towards your next flagship fund. Well, they've reacted positively simply because we've continued to provide them with a high standard of returns, particularly on a risk-adjusted basis. And so we continue to sort of uh, benefit from their strong support. And, and I don't think we see it as a sort of necessarily a strategy shift. It's more an evolution over time, um, still using those same aspects and those same strengths that we have embodied within the, the sort of the fabric of the company. And that is having very strong operating partners who work constantly hand in glove with the deal team to get the best possible results for those investors. Uh, and because we communicate constantly and consistently to them about everything that we're doing and provide them with updates on the financial performance of everything uh, that we've invested in within the portfolio, we have a very good dialogue with them. And so we maintain the highest possible relationship with all of the LPs. Mm, definitely. LP communication has been a key topic for every GP recently, I think, and certainly in this context as well. Now, I wanted to ask as well, and maybe our listeners are wondering too, what does the future hold for Sun European Partners? Particularly this year, we've obviously got a challenging market at the moment after an exceptionally busy record-breaking 2021. So what's your view on the market and the prospects for some of the sectors and themes that you're investing behind? That's a great question. So we had a very strong year last year and we added sort of five new 
associates who've settled in very, very well, I'm pleased to say. And so we have the capacity to go out there and analyze the opportunities in the market. I think probably it's fair to say that December and even January to a degree was there was a sense of taking a breather because the activity in 2021 was so frenetic. And I use that word sort of rarely, but it really was frenetic. And so it wasn't such a bad thing to allow the market to take a breather and for people to recharge batteries. I think we're now starting to see a significant number of deals coming to the market, attractive deals. And so I think whilst we may not reach the dizzy heights of 2021, I still expect 2022 to be a strong market. I think the areas that you are asking me to focus on in terms of sectors, again, we specifically, given the addition of Mark Braganza, will be focusing a lot on sort of healthcare, patient care, and, and that sort of subsector, particularly to sort of leverage the expertise and experience that Mark has and to establish the sort of type of strong healthcare franchise in Europe, which we've successfully achieved in the North American market. And so really replicating successes in North America. And the same is true in tech, where the addition of uh, Elisabeth de Saint-Agnan in our New York office last year sort of has also been very successful with a couple of transactions and a couple of follow-on bolt-on acquisitions that have taken place for those companies. And so we're looking to see how we can replicate that success also in Europe, whilst at the same time in those areas such as business services where we've clearly identified the subsectors in which we want to play, looking at opportunities there. And again, as I said previously, industrials will continue to be um, a decent portion of the investments that we, uh, we undertake at Sun. Now, just returning to tech, if I may, it's a really interesting market in that sector right now. And there are a number of factors at play, including the volatility in public markets, as well as sky high valuations. So how are you mitigating that in terms of the deals that you're looking at and that you might ultimately transact on or execute? So the, the pure sort of software uh, companies at the top end of the market, as you point out, are trading now at astronomical valuations. Uh, and that's not really where we tend to play. As I said previously, we don't play in the sort of top quartile at all. We're looking more for those businesses that maybe have a dent in them or a scratch where we can get in there, assist the management team, overcome some of the issues that it has, help it to scale and take it into a higher level of profitability than it currently sits in. And those, again, as we see in the rest of the market, excluding tech, tend not to be of interest to funds which are less focused on the operational side of things, tends to lead us to situations where at the end of a process, if, if these businesses are sold by a process, we're one of two or three at the end of the day. It's not the sort of the feeding frenzy of 10 plus that all want to acquire the asset for the simple reason, as I said, they don't have the expertise and the experience that we have in those sorts of situations. Right. Now, in the context of sectors, you've mentioned a few relatively new hires that were made over the course of 2021 in particular verticals that you target. 
So can you tell me about any other plans for new hires in particular verticals or new offices or geographies that we could potentially expect from Sun in 2022? Sure, happy to. So we're continuing to hire during the course of this year. We'll probably look to add a few associates, which we bring in as generalists before allowing them later on in their careers to develop into more specialized areas. We split really the sort of consumer, industrials, and business services into what I call the generalist sectors and healthcare and tech are more specialist sectors, as you'd expect. So we'll continue to sort of look to hire very high quality, high caliber individuals, which we've been fortunate enough to attract during the course of 2021. And then as far as offices outside of the UK are concerned, at the moment, given this, the team size, we tend to feel that it's better to have the sort of the, the, the brain power concentrated in one location. But increasingly, we are scouting some of the major economies uh, of Europe to see where it might make sense for us to have an office in those locations so that we can better serve the local market. And that will evolve, I think, during the course of, uh, of 2022. So, so stay tuned, as it were. Interesting. Great. Definitely something to look out for. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure having you, Mark. Thanks very much again for taking the time to speak to me for the podcast. You're welcome. And thank you very much, Harriet. And thank you, listener, for tuning in. If you like the Unquit Private Equity Podcast, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you again in the next episode.